cliffcentral.com. Hello and welcome everybody to uh, the Daily Maverick show on Cliff Central. We are discussing today the state of transformation in South Africa or the state to which it has not been transformed. Joining us is Antoinette Muller, the sports correspondent for the Daily Maverick. She's been covering this issue for several years now. And she, along with the Daily Maverick sister organization, Chronicle, has written a frankly astonishing piece of journalism about where transformation is in South Africa, delving not only into the political and technical issues, but also into a bit of the human side, going to places in the Eastern Cape where transformation is happening, albeit perhaps a little slower than we would all like. Not joining us in the studio today is regular host Kingsley Kapuri. Um, he is too busy for us today with uh, studying for an upcoming exam. We wish him luck and we will miss his soothing baritone over the next hour or so. You are instead stuck with me, Simon Allison, um, in for Kingsley um, and Greg this morning. Now, Antoinette is joining us from Cape Town. Good morning, Antoinette. How are you doing? Hi, Simon. I'm well, thanks. How are you? I am excellent, thank you. Now, and before we get on to the state of transformation in cricket... I'd like to talk about the state of transformation in cricket journalism. You've been doing this for a few years now. You are a female cricket journalist, and not everyone's too happy with that. Yeah, I wouldn't say not everyone's too happy with that. I mean, I think it, it really has its changed over the last few years. Um, but I think this is sort of the stuff that happens, you know, across the world and and, and anything where, where women are trying to enter the market in what has previously been a, a male-dominated sport, you know. Um, the My colleagues who I work with are fantastic, but it's, as it often is, it's the public who sometimes get a bit offended. And, and it's not even that people don't have a problem with it. It's just that when people react to something they don't agree with, they'll always go to, oh, get back in the kitchen instead of challenging you on your opinion or providing any sort of, you know, rational argument for how they disagree mm. with you and it just gets a bit tired sometimes I, I i i can imagine um and i mean how how did you decide to become a sports journalist given the given the barriers <laughs> that that did exist yeah well it sort of just happened i mean my second no third ever job was uh, doing live text commentary um which was quite often grueling hours um but i've always loved sports and Funnily enough, I got it from my mom. My mom was a huge cricket fan and a huge tennis fan and just a huge fan, sports fan in general. Um, and my first memory or one of my first memories is just always having sport on TV. And winter here, it was Wimbledon or over the summer, it was always the cricket. And it's just always something that I really enjoyed watching. Um, I have absolutely no sporting talents to speak of. And as they say, those who can't do right. So it, it was just, you know, it was just something that, that I enjoyed and, and kind of fell into, you know. I mean, I got an opportunity with Daily Maverick and I was like, wow, this is this is really cool, you know. I have always dreamed of, of being a football writer. And <laughs> I, you know, I've thought about it occasionally, but I've really worried that if I were to write about something I love and I enjoy, it would become work and I wouldn't enjoy it as much. Have you found that at all? No, I don't think so. I mean, there's a fine balance to strike uh, between enjoying, still enjoying something that you do and, and it not being perceived as work. You know, I think the big thing that I always try and remind myself is how privileged I am. It's very few people in the world get to get to, or are paid to watch sport. 
Um, and as long as I remember that, you know, what I'm doing, it is a privilege and, and being allowed to tell the stories that I do, you know, I'm not talking about match reports. I'm talking about the, the people behind those match mm-hmm. reports and, and being able to share their stories is a privilege. And it's a wonderful opportunity to to add a different dimension to, you know, just the, the straight up, oh, they won, they lost, no, 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 all that, that rubbish. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I think as long as you as long as you remind yourself that. You're very fortunate and you're very lucky to do what you do, then you know you, you manage to strike the balance. I think that that's a great perspective. Um, and uh, certainly us journalists have to enjoy what we're doing because we're not being paid enough for the privilege. Um, and in terms of uh, you know what sports do you like to cover the most? Uh, cricket, I absolutely love. In the last few months or so, since I started doing a bit more of it, I really enjoy the sevens. And I know that rugby fundamentalists will spit on me for this, but it's just such a fun format, you know. And it's just all the teams on the circuits, they're so entertaining and the way the game's constantly evolving. And it's just, it's really, really fun. So, yeah, cricket and and sevens are the two things I, I enjoy the most. And how, how do you get beyond just doing – because, I mean, one of the things I love about your journalism is it's not just the match report. There's always some bit of analysis or, or a human face behind it um, that really gives it a new perspective on what's happening. Because if I've watched the game, and I normally have, I don't need to go and read what's happened. I, I want something new. How, how do you find those angles? What do you look yeah, for? Yeah, I mean, again, again it, it's very fortunate we have a platform such as Daily Maverick that allows us to do that, you know, and – I always try and I try not to use the press conference quotes um, mm. and I try not to, like you say, focus on, on the match report as much because everyone has watched it. But I think it's just it's just one of those things that just happens. You know, if you're around these people and you're talking to these guys all the time, you always know what's behind all of that. And having a platform that allows you to express that helps a lot. You know, we're not required on Daily Maverick to write straight up match reports. So just being given that, you know, that outlet is, is a huge help for you, for me personally to go and then search for those different stories or, or whatever the case may be. Now, and let's, let's chat about the, the reason we're here today. And that is because of um, the story that you wrote, Beyond the Boundary, um, which, which really is a fantastic examination of what's happening in terms of transformation in sport in this country, in particular uh, cricket. Now, what what motivated the story? Why did you decide to take such? I mean, it's 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 how long is it? Several thousand words. It's it's a proper long form feature. Why why did you decide this issue needed so much attention? Um, well, at the time, it was just when Mbalula announced the, um, the that he's banning several sports from bidding or hosting or whatever it was going on about for failing to meet their transformation targets. Um, and I've always known that. Cricket is, it's despite what many people might think, uh, Cricket South Africa is actually doing quite a lot of work on the ground and at grassroots level. Um, and because of the pressures of newsrooms, it's not a story that's been told enough, you know. And you talk about the human side, and because there's so much pressure on us focusing on, on the match reports of how the national mm. team's doing, there wasn't much focus on that. And equally important was that. Um, the perception around transformation is completely warped. I think for most of the public, transformation is Fakile Mbalula shooting his mouth off about something and and making these you know outlandish remarks. 
Antoinette, um, what prompted you to do this story? Why did you think it was so important and it needed to be done in such depth? Uh, I think there are sort of two aspects to that, and some of it's going to sound incredibly selfish, but I think journalists have a massive role to play in changing the perception of transformation. I think for a lot of people, transformation has a wholly negative connotation, but it's not it's not Mbalula yapping along about something, and it's not quotas. That's not what transformation is. Transformation is access to resources and access to opportunities, um, and telling that story from behind the scenes and, and delving deeper into what happens to get to those targets that all these governing bodies are setting is an important part of the story. Equally important is realizing that transformation and high performance actually goes hand in hand. And that's something we touch on on the story too. So selfishly, um, I, I want to help change and shape the misconception that transformation is a bad thing. So it's it's not a bad thing. Why not? Of course it's not. Of course, it's not a bad thing. It, transformation is, there's 52 million people in this country. As it stands, a fraction of those people, and this is in all sports, have been given the opportunity to express their talents. If this country was to tap into all of the talent that exists in the rural areas and in, in areas that don't have all the facilities, this country will, without a doubt, be the best at every single sport in the world, Olympics, cricket, rugby, everything. This country will be a sporting powerhouse if we tap into that talent pool. So, the, I mean, the standard um, sort of veiled racist critique of transformation is to look at the Springbok squad and say, oh, no, we're putting too many players that don't deserve to be there. And that's why we've, you know, um, had a series of horrible losses on the autumn tours. Um, you know, do, 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 is transformation being rushed at those national levels? Um, should we just be focusing on it at at, at the bottom levels and waiting? Um, or is there a case that, that that actually we'd still be better now actively transforming the national teams? Uh, yes and no. I mean, if you look at the the starting fifteen of the Springbok team, I think there were only four black guys in the team. So if the black guys are ruining the team, where the hell are they? <laughs> because I don't see them. You know. Um, I think targets are important because they force governing bodies to act on the ground level, which is what Cricket South Africa is doing very successfully. I don't think the South African Rugby Union is doing it as successfully. I think that's largely still an old boys club. Um, but the targets do help in enforcing action in taking the game to areas where it's not previously been or where it's not as, you know, it's it's not as well supported as it is in, at a school like Bishops, for example. You go to Bishops, there's, you know, 10 cricket fields or whatever, one under floodlights. You go to Mamalodi, there's one cricket field with a pokey little clubhouse and no floodlights. You wouldn't even know it was a cricket field. Mm. Um, so these targets, I mean, they're not a long-term solution, absolutely not. But in the short term, they force some governing bodies to implement the structures that will allow those targets to be met. So yes and no, um, it, it should be, of course, grassroots is, is where it should start, but I don't think that it's a wholly bad thing at national level. One of the things that struck me in your piece was how having black players in teams at national levels is also hugely inspirational to, to younger cricketers and rugby players and, and, and students at, at those grassroots levels. You sort of need one without the other. And I'd like to, to read a passage from 
um, your story quickly. Um, and it's, it's, it's about Micaiah Intini, really. Um, there are a few places in the world as beautiful as the Eastern Cape. Its rolling hills are punctuated with imposing mountain ranges that tower over the endless valleys and deep river beds. The clouds always seem to hang lower and more heavily than anywhere else and turn bruised violet as they grow or starving off the weight of the African sun at the end of a long day. These vast landscapes, where the closest town is often a good few hours' drive away, aren't exactly what you would associate with burgeoning cricket talent. Yet, more cricket fans will be able to tell you about the village of Imdingi in the Eastern Cape than Friedenburg, a major farming town on the country's west coast. Now, Imdingi is famous because that is where Mikaya Intini is from. And for the last decade, you know, before we've had Kahiso Robada and Temba Bavuma, he was the only black African player to make it into the Proteas. Just how important is he in this transformation story? Yeah, he's massively important, but um, I think it's also people from from small towns are important. You know, we uh, we did an interview with Siabelo Sinatra recently, and he's from Valkum, which is also a very small little town. And I asked him, you know, like growing up in a small town like that, uh, did you ever think you'd be the star that you are now? And he said, you know, not really, because we only saw the people from the big cities make it. And we always thought you can only make it if you're from a big place like that. And we never realized that greatness actually exists within yourself. So Ntini's influence, um, and this is probably the reason why there are so many black fast bowlers. The other reason being bowling is a far cheaper hobby than, than batting. Mm. But I don't think people quite understand just how important it is to have role models and representatives at the top that look like you, that you can relate to, whether that's from the same village that you're from or the same area or whether it's just someone with the same skin color as you. You know, it, it has such a massive impact on the kids in, in these areas. And every single kid, basically, we spoke to in the Eastern Cape who was at school at Dale or whatever, if you ask them who's your hero, almost every single one would be like Mackay and Tink. Mm. So it, it's astonishing. It's it's so important to have those role models and I'm not talking about the type of person now. I'm talking simply from a sporting perspective. Seeing people make it from from a place where you don't have much hope is is vital. And you know, do, do you think there'll be a sort of exponential effect now? Now that there are more black players coming into the Proteus squad, that that will increase the range of role models and and will have a greater impact on the grassroots. Yeah, of course it would. But I mean, um, the grassroots programs exist. The problem with them is that the resources required to be a professional cricket player is tremendous. You know, um, everything from the time that you need to invest into, you know, honing your skills to the schools that you need to go to traditionally to make it. Um, there are there are enormous challenges that still exist. But that said, um, I think uh, there were some stats released from the SABC <clears throat> over the this year's um, tour against England when Obuma was going on to score his century. And it was some of the highest figures that the SBC had ever had for cricket. And the majority of people watching were black Africans. So, you know, that just shows you just how enormous of an impact having these kinds of guys come through and make it can have, not just on people who want to be cricket players, but just, just society in general. A lot of your, your story is set in the Eastern Cape. Um, tell us about the culture of cricket 
that exists there? Yeah, so it's it's massive. Like I said, um, or like we write in the story, you're you're not likely to see any sock and X in the Eastern Cape. It's rugby poles and and cricket squares. Um, and I think the theory is that a lot of that is because the former homelands were so secluded from the apartheid government, denying people in urban areas chances to play. So just going back to Basil Dolavira, who's a who lived in Cape Town. I mean, he was either made to play on crappy little wickets or kicked off the pitches that mm-hmm. these guys were playing on. Um, but because the homelands were secluded, this denial of opportunity never really happened that much. So sport was allowed to thrive and traditions were allowed to to form themselves without the interference that you would get in the urban areas. So I think that's that's why this culture has been fostered there. Um, so cricket was brought there by the missionaries years ago and, and it just it just grew from there because, well, cricket's a great game and, and it, it's evidence that the fallacy, oh, it's not traditionally a black man's mm-hmm. game, is absolute rubbish. Going, going back in history, um, you tell a fascinating story about uh, Armin Hendricks. Um, can, can you just, just tell us a little, little bit about him and why he was so important? Yeah, I mean, so he was sort of one of the the first, or he's the first documented case of a player of color being denied an opportunity, like back in the 1890s, I think, um, he was written about as being the fastest bowler in the country. Um, and then, like back then, you know, things were divided, but they weren't like legally divided as they, as they would be later on. Um, and he sort of became the, the poster boy for um, why so a social segregation was needed, um, which is quite ironic considered he was he, he was written about as being a draw card by mm. the uh, by the English press, but the white press here were like, oh no, you know, like you have to split these guys apart and and they you know they just can't work together. Um, so he sort of he played a bit and then just completely vanished from the system. I tried to, I mean, I live in Woodstock and he he played. Woodstock Cricket Club and I tried to find any sort of documents from, from Woodstock Cricket Club at the time and just couldn't find any you know and I'm, I'm sure if, if we had access to, to stories like these there'll be countless more of these guys who were exceptionally talented but we'll never know just how talented because these guys weren't allowed to play mm, Absolutely I, looking, looking forward now what, what, what is the future for transformation is, is it going to happen is, is enough being done what, what should we be doing all those questions. Um, it's definitely, I mean, we don't have a choice. If it doesn't happen, then the sporting system in this country will fall apart. And I think we see that with rugby already. And people go, ah, transformation is the issue. No, actually, transformation is the solution for rugby specifically because the pool of players that uh, rugby's drawn from is so small and it's, it's over-reliant on a, a bunch of schools who... You know, some get it, some don't, but it, it's so reliant on these former Model C schools to produce talent um, that you're missing kids who are who have exceptional ability. Um, and if if you keep persisting with this small talent pool, you know you're not going to be able to keep up with with greater uh, integrated countries who, who draw from all over. So it has to happen. Um, it's happened much more in cricket than it is anywhere else. Uh, uh, but like I said, cricket's main challenge is it requires so much investment, you know, and mm. facilities especially is a, is a really, really big problem. 
um, and maintenance of that facility is another issue. So, for instance, um, I think there's a there's a picture in that piece of the field that um, Tini used to play on. And it's sort of been, you know, it's fallen apart a bit. But on the bright side, rugby's thriving in Dingy at the moment. So, mm. you know, you have these swings and, and roundabouts where, um, I mean, it would be great if there was still a, a fantastic cricket oval in Dingy where, where players would come every week. But, you know, if rugby's thriving there, then absolutely fine. It doesn't matter. Um, for it to happen, I think investment in greater investment at grassroots is absolutely critical. It's a pity that it's taken 20 years for people to wake up to the fact that that's what's needed. Um, but in what I've seen, what we saw when all these places we traveled to and some of the people we met, I'm confident that there are enough people who want to do the right thing to push for the right thing to happen. So, especially in cricket. Again, I'll mm. stress that cricket cricket's doing a great job. Rugby, I'm I'm a bit more, you know, I'm I'm not convinced. But I'm I'm sure that there are enough people in cricket, especially in the Eastern Cape, who want to make this happen. Um and we touch on on the one guy, Greg Hayes, who's just he's one of the most amazing batshit crazy people I've hmm. ever met in my life. But he is so determined to make things work in the Eastern Cape that he would go to war for transformation and making sure that that it is done holistically. Um, and for someone who, you know, was integral in, in fighting for Ntini to go to a school when he was a Kosa boy who couldn't speak in English, you know, having people like that in the right places is, is central to the success of transformation. You know, you, you've got people like Greg Hayes who are pushing from within the system but, but I wanted to ask you more broadly about um, sports administrations. You know, we, we, talk, we, we look at the, the color composition of the teams in the field, but we don't always apply the same lens to the club management, the coaches, the, the bureaucracies that, that underpin how sports run in this country. How transformed are those bureaucracies? Yeah, I mean, um, if you look at board level, uh, it's, it's decent. Um, but I think also we should be doing more to to employ black coaches because that's something that helps transformation just happen organically. Um, if you use an example like the Lions, for example, under Jeffrey Toyana, um, they've been one successful and two players of color have just come through naturally. It's mm. just something that happened. Same happened when Shukri Conrad was at the Cobras. Players just started coming through without needing to push through targets or things like that. So it would be great if there was a greater push for for coaches of color, um, and and that's sort of you know that that's the other side of the spectrum. So great, the the guys are coming through and they're playing. But is there someone there who understands your issue? You know, there's a there's a white coach from a privileged background understand that this guy's had to take a train, two taxis, all while having to fetch mm -hmm. the paraffin before he got to training. Um, so having people who understand that dynamic is is very is very important especially at semi-pro and, and professional level, to, to making this successful. And after the success of, of this story, um, which is an award-winning story, I believe, what's next? What else are you going to turn your, your lens to? Um, well, I think there's a this lovely initiative in, or across the country called Dreamfields, which sort of builds soccer facilities, um, and it, uh, it sort of, you know, it, it just helps kids play play sport and, and get active but um 
we've actually, or we will be launching, hopefully this week, uh, another video series um, where we'll interview a couple of, or not a couple, but as many as possible of South Africa's top sports people and just telling their story in a different way, you know, just making sure that they get the the human side of, of their story across. And as I mentioned earlier, Sanaka is, is our first um, attempt at doing that, but we've got a, a few people lined up. Um, and it won't necessarily be the most famous people. It'll just be sports sports people who have interesting stories. Um, there's a, a player we, we did a story on last year, uh, Emmanuel's, I'm going to try and pronounce his surname, but I'm going to get it wrong. Uh, Emmanuel Sabramin, I think. Um, and he's a Rwandan refugee. He was born in the Congo, and him and his parents walked from the Congo to South Africa, and he's now playing semi-pro cricket at Western Province. Um, so That's those are the kinds story. of stories. Yeah, so, so we've covered him sort of, kind of, but we've not had him you know, his human side and him on camera. And that's what I really want to bring across because I think that's so important with sports. You know, I think we forget when people and fans go on Twitter with how accessible sports guys are these days, they just get slated and they get abused and all sorts of horrible things hold at them. But we forget that these guys are just human, you know. No one, they didn't ask to be role models. They didn't ask to be these heroes that, that we make them out to be. They are beyond their excellence they are still just human and they all have a story to tell in a different way and they've all had to go through challenges you know for some guys that might mean you know walking from Rwanda to Joba for other guys just might mean um having the mental strength to overcome a barrage of injuries um and that's the message that you know I really want to get out of these guys and I think it's a lot of often animosity towards the press because of the things that we sometimes write you know and sometimes we are quite harsh Mm. But I think there's a there's a balance to be struck in that, you know, I realize as a journalist that these guys, you know, they're really just ordinary human beings who, who want all the ordinary things that, that we have to face with and, and they have to deal with challenges. And if we can relate those challenges into our everyday lives, then maybe, you know, we can stop hurling abuse at, at these guys at, at every corner. Because often what happens isn't their fault. You know, if you mm. look at the... The Springboks at the moment, I feel very sorry for those guys. They're, they're crap, but so <laughs> much of what's happened is not their fault. You know, it's the system's fault. And I think <laughs> if we can just if we can just help people understand that, you know, there's a there's a balance here. Like, yes, of course, we want the sports teams to do well and, mm-hmm. and we expect certain things of them. But beyond that, you know, there's a guy who who just likes chucking a ball about. I think we'll be tweeting that that comment, Antoinette. The Springboks are crap, but it's not necessarily their fault. That's lovely. <laughs> now, before I, I, I let you go, I want to ask one last question about a um, um, one of your favorite people, I believe, um, our, our sports minister, Mr. Rasmataz. Um, yeah. you, you know, so much of this needs to come from the top, and it was his his initiative to um, ban the, the big four sporting codes from bidding for big international events that, that really precipitated the story. What's his role in all this? Is is government and, and Mbalula specifically doing enough to uphold their end of the bargain? Um, no, I don't think they're doing enough. I think Mbalula is very disconnected from the, the transformation discourse. I don't think he quite grasps what is required to make sure that this is successful in the long term. 
Um, the government's mandate is facilities. Um, and if you look at any report of the last two years, we, we covered it, I think it was last year, in that the access to facilities remains staggeringly inept. Um, one facility for every five schools or something ridiculous like that in rural areas. Um, and we saw that again with this story um, in the Eastern Cape. So um, there's, a, there's a few villages that um, require kids to travel 20 kilometers just to be able to play. And that's just, that's not good enough. If you want sport to be something that that we all, you know, that, that everyone has access to, then it's it's the government's mandate to ensure that those facilities are are built and maintained. Um, I think they could also do more in, or Mbalula specifically could do more in how he, he engages with the topic of transformation, because I think everything that's come from him has been aggressive and that has created that perception that this is all happening from the top down when it's not. You know, the, the governing bodies in certain sports are doing all they can to make it to make it work. Um, but I don't think I don't think government's coming to the party, not not as much as they should. Antoinette Muller, thank you very much for coming on to the Daily Maverick show today. Thanks for having me. It is a pleasure. Ladies and gentlemen, that has been the Daily Maverick show on Cliff Central um, broadcasting to you. In December, um, I think this is one of the last shows of the year. We look forward to talking to you more next year. And thanks for tuning in.